Shall we pray as we stand? Father God, we thank you that you are altogether lovely, that you're altogether worthy of our honour, both with our lips, but also with our whole lives. Father, that we, though we deserve nothing, have been given everything in you. And we pray, Father, that tonight as we look again at Colossians, you may just expand our vision of who you are in Christ. And we pray that as we do that, we would marvel even more at the great gospel which you have brought to us and that we would live lives which bring glory and honour to your name, pleasing you in every way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. We're going to look at Colossians 1, particularly focusing on verses 15 to 20. And so there's some pages you can take notes if you want in your booklet, as always. Now, just outside Sheffield, there's a place called Surprise View. Some of the people from Sheffield probably know that. You, you drive out of Sheffield, you kind of go through some nice countryside, and then you end up going between these two big rocks and kind of round a corner as you go between the rocks. And as you come out the other side, there's just this amazing view that you see. It is a surprise view. You have the Hope Valley in front of you. Sometimes you can see a train pulling along through it, or you can see the clouds in the distance, the hills either side. It's an amazing kind of vista that you see. And when you first see it, it's one of those things which just makes you stand back and just think, wow, it's amazing. A stunning stunning view. I'm sure you've all had that kind of experience of seeing a stunning view. I'm sure this afternoon the walk that I went on at Sands End could have been a stunning view if it wasn't for the weather in February. But you know, have you ever had that experience when you've been out in the hills and you're walking and you just come across a view and you just sit and look at it? It's amazing, marvellous kind of view. You can understand, can't you, why when people see that kind of thing, they talk about having kind of a spiritual experience. Because in those kind of moments, you're not thinking about yourself. You think about something bigger. You know, John Piper, I love this quote from John Piper. He says this, he says, Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, contemplating your own greatness is pathological. I quite like that. Because that's what great scenery does, isn't it? It makes you think of something other than yourself. Well, tonight as we come to Colossians 1, I want to try and give you a glimpse of a vista which will draw your eyes away from yourself to our Christ. I want to present not a spectacular landscape, but the one for whom and who made it all. I don't want to show you some vista of creation, but the one who made it and sustains it all. Because that's what we see here, we see Jesus As I come to this passage, I feel a a certain measure of trepidation because the words here are just simply marvellous. And to try and do justice to them, it seems an extraordinary task. But what I hope is that we study and look at these few verses from 15 to 20, that our appreciation of, our thankfulness for, our joy in our Saviour will be increased. Now help us to understand the huge significance of the gospel that we've already been seeing. And as we come to take bread and wine later to see the amazing significance of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. 
by appreciating how great he is and how great the salvation which we've been caught up into is as we share in his body and his blood. And so as we come to these verses, do remember that these are one sentence that began at verse 9 in the original, all the way up to verse 20. Now this is another punctuation point. Now we don't have long sentences like this in English now, do we? Um, but here's Paul, one sentence. And do you remember what he wanted from verse 9? He wanted us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. A knowledge which would result in us bearing fruit and growing in knowledge and being strengthened to persevere and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. A joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. The Father who's brought us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son whom he loves and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so then these verses continue talking about that son. Paul wants us to be joyfully thankful to the father, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now he's going to show us some more of what our Lord Jesus Christ is like, who he is. You see, all the benefits that we have seen so far come to us because of Jesus And these verses present the majestic Jesus, the Jesus that we will remember in communion. And as we consider the magnitude of the gospel, my my hope is that my heart will be moved to overflow with thankfulness to our Father. And I hope that will be the same for you. And so the purpose of this section, I think, is this, is be joyfully thankful to the Father by realizing who Christ is in creation and reconciliation. And we will look at it in two sections. Firstly, be joyfully, be joyfully thankful to the Father by realizing who Christ is in creation. And then secondly, be joyfully thankful to the Father by realizing who Christ is in reconciliation. So firstly, realize who Christ is in creation. As we come then to verses 15 to 17 where we see this, just notice the structure Uh, There's a statement about Christ in verse 15. And then there's the reason for the statement in verse 16. And then in verse 17, there's a summary of it all. And so look at verse 15 where you see the statement about Christ. Uh, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, when Jesus came, when Christ came, he didn't just teach about God. He was the image of the invisible God. And John says this, he says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus came to make him known. You see, in Christ, the invisible was made visible. What cannot be seen was made seen in Jesus. He is the visible, tangible representation of God in all his fullness. In John 14, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And do you remember Jesus' reply? John 14, verse 9, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
we see God in him. But there's also a sense in which this term, I think, points us to Jesus' humanity. Do you remember what humanity was meant to be like? God said, let us make man in our image. And so he created man. Here is Jesus, the perfect representation of what humanity should be like as well. Perfect God and perfect humanity. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being. The perfect realization of humanity. I don't know, when, we were, when we lived in Sydney, we went to a, a Star Wars exhibition. They'd, they'd got a whole load of uh, the costumes from Star Wars. Um, and so we, we went uh, to have a, a look at these things with our children. I actually put my oldest off watching Star Wars because he was really scared. And to this day, he won't watch uh, Star Wars. Uh, but the, the exhibition came, contained loads of different uh, costumes and replicas of things used in the movies. And as you looked at those, you got a bit of a sense of uh, what the movie must have been like to be made. And you understood what it must have been like to wear those clothes and see those different things. And, you know, that's just a really poor illustration. But it's similar when we see Christ. We come to see what God is like. We come to see what God does. We come to see how God thinks. And in him we meant to see how we are meant to live and what we are meant to be like as the image of God. And Paul then also says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now some have said that this means Jesus it was the first creation and we'll see in a moment that it cannot mean that. It, rather to say Jesus is the firstborn it points to his position in creation. He, he is the, he is, it points to the priority that he has in creation. Priority in the sense of status or rank. All creation is subordinate to Jesus. Jesus is the king, the ruler, the supreme one over it all. It's quite staggering really, isn't it? The man, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. And the man who, just a few years before Paul wrote this, had been crucified on a Roman cross. And Paul describes him in this way, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. How could Paul say such things about the man Jesus Christ? Well, he gives some reasons in verse 16. You see how it begins with for, giving the reason for what he's going to say. And this is the reason. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers of authority, all things were created by him and for him. You see, it immediately shows why Christ has such an exalted position. He's not part of creation. Rather, he is the one who made all things. He created all things. And Paul shows the extent of what he made in case all things wasn't enough for you. And you see how he goes on. He made all things, things in heaven and on earth. It's quite comprehensive really, isn't it? Visible and invisible. Do you know those things that you can't see? Well, Christ made those. Do you know the the thrones, the powers, the rulers or authority, anything else which may have a claim of authority or power in the world, well, Christ made those. There's nothing which stands against him. Do you get the point? Christ made it all. Everything, therefore, is under him. Christ has complete supremacy over everything in the world. 
You see how he's described then in relation to creation. He is supreme. Now let me just make a, a nerdy point at this point, but it's quite, quite important. Um, I think this is the kind of thing that happens when you go to Bible college. You become a little bit nerdy at times. Um, actually, I remember when, when I was in my first year at college, um, I remember uh, somebody preaching at college and I thought, oh boy, they were so boring. It just seemed to go on and on and on. But then in second year, the same person uh, preached again, and I thought it was brilliant. Um, and at that point, I wasn't quite sure whether my boredom threshold had been raised or whether it was actually a better sermon. But anyway, here's the, here's the nerdy uh, point. Look at the prepositions because they're important. You see the first one in verse 16, for by him or in him, Everything was created. That's saying everything was created within Christ's sphere of influence. Then it says everything was created by him. The NIV is unhelpfully translated those in the same way, but they're different. In him in the first one, by him the second one. Everything was created by him. That is, Christ was the powerful agent of creation. He was the word by which everything was created. And then lastly, you see, it was for him. And that shows the, the purpose and the goal of creation. Uh, the purpose and the goal of creation all lies in their relationship to Christ. Now here's Christ who's supreme in creation. He made everything and everything was made for him. And as John Woodhouse says, all things have their origin, existence and purpose in him. And this is the one in whom we have, the, have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the one whose kingdom we have been brought into. Can you start to see how staggering your salvation is? As you come to grow in the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's more of this Christ that you will come to understand. And so Paul sums it all up in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see how inextricably linked everything is to Christ and the world. He is before all things, is supreme, and in him all things hold together. You see, Christ upholds and sustains the world all the time, all in every moment. It's very different to a view that often that we can have, which is called deism, which is the view that somehow God stands at a distance from creation. In the bath, when my boys were a bit younger, they used to have a toy dolphin that they used to wind up, and then they would kind of let the dolphin go, and its tail would wag and kind of go around the pool. And sometimes people think that's what God did with creation. He kind of wound it up like the toy dolphin and put it in the bath and then just watched it go. But can you see what, how different that is to what it's saying here? He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ holds all things together all the time. There's not a moment in which he is somehow absent from the world. He is there all the time sustaining it all. Everything owes its existence and continuation to Christ all the time. And this is the one that we have come to believe in. This is the one that the Colossians had faith in. It's quite staggering, really, when you start to think about it. We'll be joyfully thankful to the Father by realizing who Christ is in creation and be joyfully thankful to the Father, secondly, by realizing who Christ is in reconciliation. We see this in verses 18 to 20. 
Now you see the same elements in 18 to 20 as we saw in 15 to 17, but in a different order. Uh, Paul this time begins with the summary and then we have a statement about Jesus and then the reasons. The statement first at the beginning uh, of verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Here's a, a summary of the second part, if you like, which is Christ and reconciliation. The summary of the first part in verse 17 expresses the sovereignty of Jesus in all things. It points to his priority over all things because he was before all things and everything holds together in him. He's the final destiny of all things. And can you then sense the shock as we come to think about Christ in reconciliation when Paul says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. John Woodhouse helpfully says this, the first half of the passage can lead us, it could have led us to expect something like, he's the head of the universe, or he is the head of the totality of all things. Head would be a very fitting metaphor for, for what has been said of Christ's relation to all things in verses 15 to 17. But that's not what's now said. The body of which he is head is the assembly. He is head of the body, the church. The church which we are to think of as a gathered round Christ in heaven and is seen visibly in local gatherings of Christians gathering to hear Christ speak. He is the head of that. Can you imagine the, the first believers listening to this? Maybe sitting around in Philemon's house. The letter to Philemon was probably taken at the same time as this letter to Colossae. He was a citizen there. People sitting around in his house, listening to the Apostle Paul read this letter, and they were thinking, he's talking of us. A small, insignificant group in Colossae, in someone's front room. See, when they had thought of church, they wouldn't have been thinking of Christianity as a world religion. They were a small, insignificant group who had come to have faith in someone called Christ. but they were the body of which Christ is head. It's quite a startling thought. Paul is laying this group of people alongside Christ's sovereignty over all things, the church. What's the connection then between the sovereignty Christ has over all things and him being head of the body, the church? Well, in the second half of verse 18, we see Paul speak of who he is. Here's this statement about Christ. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Can you see how it parallels verse 15? There's a statement about Christ and then he is the firstborn of something. And so this time we see though Christ is the beginning. Or if you like, Christ is the new beginning. And this new beginning comes because he has been resurrected from the dead. And the reason for that is that he might have supremacy in all things. And as we read those words, there's something obviously being unsaid. It's something unsaid here, but made quite clear in the verses that surround. You see, Christ is supreme in creation, and yet, in some way, there's been a disruption in creation. Now, there is a kingdom of darkness. There is, verse 20, people who were alienated from God and enemies in their minds because of their evil behavior. 
You see, while everything does depend on Christ and everything is, finds its existence in Christ, there is, in some sense, some people who stand outside of that, who stand opposed to that. And while Christ is the one who is sovereign over all things, there are people who will not acknowledge that and stand opposed to him. And yet he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that he will have supremacy in all things. You see, the purpose of this new beginning is that he will become what he already is, first in every sense. And the reason Paul can say that is seen in verse 19. And notice again the reason for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In the Old Testament, people looked for a place where God's fullness would dwell, the place where they could find God. For them, that would be, it was going to, they thought it was going to be Jerusalem, the temple is the place where you could find God. And yet we are told that everything about God dwelt in Christ. That's where you find God in Christ. I love John Woodhouse's description of this again. All the fullness of God, by all the fullness of God, we are to understand as all the fullness of God's glory and wisdom and goodness All the fullness of God's grace, all the fullness of God's power, all the fullness of God's purpose was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Can you start to see why Jesus was going to be supreme in all things? But it goes on in verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The reason this one will be supreme in all things? Well, all the fullness of God dwells in him. And it's through him that God was pleased to reconcile all things, all those things that stood opposed. You see, everything that has been ruptured will be brought back together and put right. I don't know if you've ever been at war with somebody or had a a relationship which was destroyed I remember one student who came to Sheffield. I don't quite know what happened with him, but his relationship with his parents was destroyed. He never went home at holidays. He never phoned his parents, never had any contact with them. It was heartbreaking to kind of see the effect that that had. Now for that relationship, and the longer it took and the longer they went on, for that relationship to be reconciled was going to take an awful lot. It was going to take a lot to bring them back together. And yet the rupture in the world because of our sin is far greater than that. Far greater. And that rupture in the world was so great and yet in Christ everything is reconciled and brought back together by his death on the cross. And the blood of Christ shed on the cross is a remarkable thing. And it's through the, his penal substitutionary death that you are not, not only you are saved, but the whole world will be remade. You know, we'll be taking bread and wine in a moment. And when we remember Christ's death on the cross on our behalf, this is what we're doing. Remembering that Everything was going to be reconciled by his death on the cross. It's a staggering thing. Christ in reconciliation. 
See, where do we see the remaking of this broken world taking place? Well, think about the Colossians. In Colossae, the beginnings of that world remade took place as Epaphras came and spoke the gospel to them. As he came and explained the truth to these Colossians. The gospel which was bearing fruit amongst them and bearing fruit in the whole world and growing. Do you remember the summary, verse 18? He is the head of the body, the church. You see, it's in the church that we see the seeds of the world remade. In his book, um, Remaking a Broken World, Christopher Ashe has a chapter about the church. And his first title in that chapter is this. He says, God is remaking the world through the local church. He says in his introduction, the thesis of this chapter, indeed the theme of this book, is precisely this. The ordinary local church with all its imperfections, weaknesses, oddities and problems, has within it the seeds, the spiritual and relational genetic blueprint of a broken world remade. You see, the Christ and reconciliation is doing it through the church. As we gather here tonight, if you like, we are a demonstration of the world starting to be remade. And as the gospel spread and goes out and develops and grows, Christ's supremacy is seen more and more in the world. And as verses 21 and 22 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see the significance of the reconciliation that Christ has brought for you. That Christ, the one who was supreme in all creation, became part of creation and reconciled all creation to himself so that he would be supreme in all creation. And you have been drawn into that. And so at this point, I feel my words start to fail me in the description of how marvelous and amazing this is. So huge and so vast, so all-encompassing is this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can start to understand Piper's words, can't you, that to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and consider yourself is pathological. In the same way, to stand here and consider how great we are before our Savior would be pathological. But the remarkable thing is he came and died on the cross so that you could come to realize how great he is. Be drawn into his salvation. To have faith in Christ Jesus because of the hope which is stored up for you in heaven. I'm going to leave a few moments now for you to respond maybe quietly yourself in prayer and then we will sing again.